This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to the John B. Crox School of Peace Studies. Uh, in this school, uh, we believe that you don't have very much peace. It's not very sustainable without justice, and we don't think you have much justice without peace. So we think the two go together inextricably. We also believe that studies ought to be combined with practice. And so our Institute for Peace and Justice and our Transborder Institute are very involved in the practice in various places around the world of peace and justice issues. We also believe that peace and justice shouldn't be an abstraction. It should be a challenge of public policy. So we are developing the school as the first school of public policy devoted to the questions of peace and justice. Now, uh, this is going to be an inspiring evening. First, because I'm going to leave the podium very shortly. Uh, and second, with Lema, we have someone who has inspired people throughout the world, and we've already had the benefit of her twice today, and we appreciate her patience to have it for a third time. Now, I've only been dean of this school for a little over six months, but you learn a few things. One of the things you learn very quickly is whenever possible, delegate. And so tonight I'm very pleased to delegate uh, to Dee Akers, who is known as uh, the woman peacemaker. Uh, and as someone who's known uh, Lema for many years, in fact, welcomed her here five years ago. Uh, so Dee is going to engage in a conversation uh, with Lema, and with that, let me exit the stage, and thank you all very much for coming. We appreciate having you. Thank you. Well, good evening, and let me add my welcome to our deans, and thank you for joining us here at the Crock School of Peace Studies at the University of San Diego for the Joan B. Crock Institute for Peace and Justice Distinguished Lecture, Transforming Conflict Through Nonviolent Coalitions, with a truly brave and, above all, transparent and honest woman. Um, it's my privilege and pleasure to share an evening with the 2011 Nobel Peace Laureate, Lema Bowie, and you, uh, because it takes all of us, as she often points out. And our evening is designed to let us step into her world briefly and the revelations there. This Liberian mom of six, domestic violence survivor, peace activist, social worker, women's rights advocate who speaks truth to power, who founded a number of organizations, including most recently the Bowie Peace Foundation Africa, and along the way got the Nobel Peace Prize all before she was 40 years old. A slightly longer bio is in your program, and the book Mighty Be Our Powers, uh, which tells intimately her story, is available out in the rotunda. Um, and it's really her story on how this came to pass. But there's also some people that would love for you to, uh, or would be thrilled, if you went back and found the film, Pray the Devil Back to Hell. Netflix would be happy if you'd rented, and uh, Abigail Disney would be glad if you bought it. Um, <laughs> and we're actually really happy to see how in that film how this happened with the diverse community. And those of you who have met her here before five years ago saw the film, 
or when she joined us for a conference that we did called Crafting Human Security in an Insecure World. Um, there's so much to talk about, but we want you to have time to do it. I'm going to ask just a few questions and we'll have a little bit of discussion up here. But I want you to know that we were encouraged and engaged on the promise that she made and was living when she came here before. And um, it appears, however, that I have to say something that I really believe, that her nonviolent transformation activities are sometimes not a passive, quiet, nonviolent <laughs> uh, style, but a very vocal, direct, and shall we say risky, uh, in which way she uh, leads the way to peace in Liberia and elsewhere now around the world. So welcome, Lema. Thank you, Dee. Thank you so much. Well, one thing, let's start a little towards the beginning, not the very beginning, we only have an hour. Um, <laughs> when you were 17 years old, the Liberian Civil War had just started, and you uh, said that you turned from being a child into adult in a matter of hours. Um, can you give us a feeling for what it was like, what that, that moment was like, that journey was like from then on, and what changed? All right, thank you, and thank you all for coming. It's truly an honor to be back here um, five years later. I told them since 2008, I now have a three-year-old going on 40. So since I left, I've been really busy. <laughs> but um, I grew up in a very sheltered, not rich community, but very sheltered. Um, where we grew up was the typical um, example of Ubuntu. You know, you are because I am. We all exist because of the other. Liberia has 16 tribes, the community we grew up in. Maybe 10 of those tribes lived there. Everyone practiced their culture, but we were children of the community. So at 5 o'clock, if you went to the next neighbor house, you took your bath there and put on someone else's clothes, and they took you home sleeping, we will stand on our porch and shout, what did you cook today? And someone will say, we cook rice with cassava leaves and rice with food. So can we share? So those were the kinds of things that we did. And when lights went off, we sang and danced our cultural, sang different traditional songs. Everyone came out, so all of the parents were sitting on their porch. There was that feeling of you're sheltered. And then we go to town to the very plush high schools, but also sheltered because all of the kids in those schools, parents or in our school, parents knew each other. We were still children at 17. You could go to your dad and say, I need this, your mom. There was guidance. And then we wake up and we're hearing all this story about war. And we wake up one morning, my mother is gone. My father is gone. And I'm waiting for a few hours to go to school. And then there's shooting. Real loud shooting. This old man says, I, I know this sound. The rebels have come. And my sister's three kids are at home. And my two younger siblings are there. And I'm the only child of my parents at home at that moment. And my niece is running to the door. And one of our relatives is coming with another child. And she takes her out of the way standing and observing that interaction at that moment. It was like, you have to take charge. So I took all of those kids in, 
And that night people were coming asking me, what are we eating? This is a question I ask people, you know, and then my aunt was saying to me, you have to take control of your parents' bedroom. By morning, we had over 50 people internally displaced in our home. I had to be saying, let's cook this, let's do this, let's do that. So you wake up at 8 in the morning, and you're a 17-year-old. And by 10 p.m., you're 20-something or 30-something because you have the burden and the responsibility of a whole group of people on your shoulder. And people are already beginning to tell you, look around and find those important documents of your parents to keep. Do this, do that. Those are not things that ordinary 17-years-old think about. But in a matter of weeks, I master all of it. One thing that you had with your family um, and in your community uh, was a sense of faith. You became a person, or you were a person of faith. But it seems that you came to know and live your convictions so much more than simply being church dogma. Um, In today's world, institutionalized religions can seem separate from people, and you went through... Uh, the way they live, but in your transition during those times from that point on, what was it like for you? How did you go beyond or include your sense of faith in who you became? Well, when you live in a world where you see a lot of injustice happening and people who profess to be true (coughs) believers of whichever religion or people are committing atrocities in the name of all of those religions, you, you have to come to the place where you understand what tr- faith truly is. And most times when you read different accounts, I read different accounts in the Bible, I'm not just looking at um, eye for an eye. You have to rationalize the meaning of eye for an eye into this world. And, and one old lady said, if you practice eye for an eye now, we're going to have a group of damn blind people all over the world. <laughs> so you have to think about that. But for me, one thing that I picked from the life of Jesus was compassion. And there is no way that you can live and interact with people and don't feel a sense of compassion when something has gone wrong or something is going wrong. So over time, different things led me. I have been writing a little book for so long, and I pause on that book, but my desire is to publish that book and just give it out for free. It's a tiny book that I've titled Giving. And in that book, maybe if you read it, you get to understand how my faith grew so strong. Because in my life's journey, it hasn't been just Christians that have reached out to me. It hasn't been just Muslims. It's been people of different faith and then reading different things and just trying to make sense of this world that we all know a God or believe that a God created. And if he created this world, how did he intend for us to live? How can you say I'm a person of faith and you see a child suffering and don't offer that person food? How can you be a person of faith and see a young girl with so much potential and you have the resources to send her to school and turn a blind eye? So you have all of those things in play. But again, I tell people my life journey has been one that I track. I'll give you a quick story. My kids and I have been very, very poor um, for a long time. And then my sister moved back to Monrovia 
from exile. And we live in a, t- in a tiny apartment. I think just the entire apartment is this stage. And I had four kids. She had one daughter. Then I had a brother I took, and a niece came to live. So in this space, then a girl was thrown out. We took her in to help her finish high school. Every morning, we will make food, breakfast, and put it on the porch. And the kids in the neighborhood would cross over and come to eat. And I would say, make way for others to come and eat. And my sister would glare at me and say, you are so going to call armed robbers in this house tonight. Because it was a rough neighborhood. And one of the days I told, I just sat and looked, even though we were poor, but there were poor people, people poorer than we were. And so all of these old pairs of shoes under the bed, and it was getting close to Christmas, and I said to her, Mommy, let's give these shoes out to the kids in the neighborhood. So we took everything out, and children came, and not a single pair left over. My niece had made a list. We had made a list. But I had, I think, less than $100 for that Christmas, and that money could not deal with anything. Kids were upset because it's two days to Christmas and Mama can't seem to be filling this list. I had this friend who was a Catholic priest who used to just come and sit in my house to laugh. He said the kids were just crazy because every night we did a thing called peace building. And every night my son Arthur, who's 16 now, was the only culprit apologizing to everyone. I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. So if you came to my house for 30 days, Arthur was the one apologizing. <laughs> so this man used to come and just say sometimes he would pray with us. He had gone to England, and he came that evening at 12 midnight. A Catholic priest knocking at the window of a single woman at 12 midnight. Of course, I was shocked. <laughs> and I was like, what do you want? And he said, just open your door. No, 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 but you should be in England. He said, just open the door. It's a long story. I'm tired. My flight came in late. I want, so he, when I opened the front door, he put two huge suitcases in my living room. And then he said, I'm too sleepy. We'll talk about it tomorrow. Come in. So the kids woke up and said, what's in the suitcase the next morning? I said, well, Brother David brought these, these two suitcases by 12, he came. And then he said when he was leaving England, there was this woman who came running to the priest's house and said, you're going to Africa. It's Christmas. I have these two suitcases. Go and give it to any single mother. He brought those suitcases and said, he used to call me Lemos. That's how they call me in the community. That's my rough gangster name. <laughs> So he, he, he brought it, so he said, so I brought these two suitcases. We sat down and opened up those suitcases, D. And everything we had on our list was in those suitcases, including shoes for the kids and clothes for the kids. And I turned and looked at my sister, and she looked back at me. When you've lived a life of lack, and when God has stepped in mysteriously on many occasions, and that's just one, and provided in such an awesome way, sometimes you don't need the Bible to give you an understanding of who God is.
stay with that whole issue of faith just for a little bit longer. That when you started working uh, on the issue, the concern with organizing women to stand up against Charles Taylor, etc. Who was the first? How did it happen that the Muslim, uh, your Muslim associate, the, the lead woman for that group, crossed that boundary, or you crossed it? Because that wasn't the case at the time. Well, when we first it was the Christian Women Peace Initiative, and. I went to bed. I used to live with my computer. My kids were in exile. So I lived in this house all by myself. And I, no, I did not own a computer at the time. I take that back. But I had a notebook that I wrote everything in. And I remember that night laying next to the window and having this notebook. And I woke up shivering. But in that dream, real dream, gathered the women to pray for peace. The next morning, my boss was a pastor. And I went to him and said, Bibi, I had this dream. And Vaba, who's been here, was also one of my bosses then. And this person was saying to me, gather the women. So Reverend, that's how we call our boss. Since you are a pastor, call the women of the church and give them this dream. And he looked at me and said, Levan, the dream bearer is always the carrier of the dream. I said, no, 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 Revy. I am in a relationship that I'm not married to the man. Oh, am I fornicating? No, Jesus could not be talking to me. And then he said, no. And so we started the whole Christian Women Peace Initiative. And the first time we went to meet a delegation of the World Council of Churches, Asatu was the most, only Muslim woman, stood up and said she was going to take it back to her Muslim sisters. She went and threw the idea at them. And the first question they asked was, who organized the Christian women? And she said, Lima. So technically, they baptized me a Muslim to come and organize the Muslim women. We started working with them because the first thing we needed to know, what time they were available, all of those things. But what has been very interesting in all of this faith conversation, most times when I'm having interfaith dialogue with people, I ask, in this work that we did, who do you think were the more problematic group? And because of the impression or the, 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 the uh, myth of Muslim fundam fundamentalism, everyone would say instantly the Muslim women were the most difficult. No. All those Christian women would come with scripture references every morning on reasons why we should not interact with the Muslim women. Sometimes it got so bad that we had to take these women aside and really just talk to them to apologize. And so it got to the place where one group of Christian women actually left us because they felt we weren't fulfilling the work of God. But the Muslims were the most easy to deal with than the Christian women, strangely. That brings up another question about when you think about standing up, I mean, you, do, you did it there, you do now, you help women around the world, you're really interested in this transformation of conflict. Do you think about going alone first to see what needs to be done, or do you begin organizing coalitions? Because this is about the coalitions coming together, like these groups, first. I mean, because they're challenges. One seems like it's going to take a lot more time, one seems like you're testing the waters. But what, when you think about going out, what do you do first? I think the first thing to do is to identify not one, but several thematic concerns in different communities. Where people miss the mark is to think that once you say women, you mobilize. That's not it. Or once you say people, you mobilize. People have to feel connected to something 
So you look into, say, this community, and maybe rape, um, domestic violence, like wife beating, um, wayward children are the key issues. And you have to really go around and kind of test the waters with, if you're trying to mobilize parents, to see which is the top of the list. And then you use that as your rallying call. So when you're going into conflict areas, you want to really start by finding something, even though, for example, in the Congo DRC, when we went there two, three years ago, two and a half years ago, I knew we still had a lot of work to do. There was no way that what happened in Liberia would happen in Congo anytime soon. Why? Because everyone sees the conflict from the lens of the ethnic group or their political ideology or who, um, some leader. They haven't seen it from the standpoint of, yes, I'm from this party and I'm from this ethnic group, but rape is an issue and it's affecting us as women. We went to Bukavu and we sat in that place, had a very beautiful meeting, and women had all of the answers. And then we said, okay, if we are to form a coalition, we need to get one person who will become the face of this movement, the person who will be the voice, and when they're not around, no one can speak, because then the message is simple, concise, and clear. No one is giving um, mixed messages. The meeting broke down there. In the Ivory Coast in 2004, before their war got hot, we went to a meeting, same thing, they spoke the same language. When it came time to fi finding the leader, the meeting broke down. The reason being, people still see that leadership within that women's group from the perspective of the political group, the ethnic group, or the rebel faction that they support. I mean, that's a really interesting point because it it creates a vision of how you would have to get people to buy into the whole idea of these coalitions that you want to create. On the other hand, certainly you're going to have to find the leaders who are willing, who are acceptable beyond that point. When, when one of the things that we, we didn't talk about in Pray the Devil Back to Hell, but which I think was a very important part of the work that we did in Liberia, was when we started something called the Peace Outreach Project. It was something called, we used to call it the POP. We trained 20 women from the Christian and Muslim groups. And those 20 women sat down and said, we want to do something collectively. After we had formed the Christian and Muslim women. And the first thing they said they wanted to tackle was HIV and AIDS. In two weeks, the problem with the war started. April 2nd actually will be 10 years when we started the mass action. So when we, 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 we decided, okay, let's work on the war issue. The, but the POP was something that they said, we want to be able to go out and tell local women that they too have a stake in the peace process. So the Peace Outreach Project was predominantly a time of awareness and mobilization, a rallying call. We did that for nine months. After nine months, we called a group back to evaluate the work that we had done. And we realized that there were issues that were coming up that was very unhealthy for the group that we were trying to build. Muslim, Christian, women's re, uh, relationship. So we, we did something, a consultation that was paid for by the Catholic Relief Services. The first day we brought the Christian women in the room. And we're looking at peace and nonviolence from the perspective of the Bible. Something that they were quite familiar with, very comfortable with. 
And we talk about, because most times when you talk to the Christian women, it will be like, oh, my religion tells me to pray. So I'm not supposed to be out there. I'm not supposed to be in the forefront of protest. I'm just supposed to pray. So then we went back to the Bible, sat down and studied women in the Bible. And we gave them Deborah, we gave them Esther, we gave them all of those powerful women. And said, did they just pray? No. Did they take action? Yes. So can you be a Deborah for your country? Of course. <laughs> so those were the first things we did. Then we went into the Quran and into all of the different readings about Islam that we could find. The next day we brought the Muslim women. But two things we did to demystify all of the myths and negative perceptions and positive stereotypes they had was to do something with the Christian women on the day. What is it that you like about the Muslim women? And they made their long list. What is it that you do not like about them? And they made their long list. What do you admire about Islam? They made their long list, kept it. Next day, work with the Muslim women. The third day brought both groups together and the room was divided by religion. Every group was, what was amazing was two women drove in the same car, one a Christian, one a Muslim, as soon as they entered that room, everyone was across the table. So we, we started by asking them to do the gallery walk. Christian women, once I'm Muslim, and you could just hear, what did they say this about us as Christians? What did they say this? Oh, that is so nice. Oh, oh, no, but it's a lie. We are not like this. Oh, that is so nice, but that's not true. Oh, and then afterwards we say, we don't want to talk about it. We brought two old ladies who had been friends for over 60 something years. One a Christian, one a Muslim. That was the turning point for us. Because one of the women, the Muslim woman, was as talkative as I am. <laughs> And the Christian woman was so quiet and reserved. It was a total contrast from what those women, the perception that they held. And then this Muslim woman in her talking about their friendship said, my friend here, husband used to abuse her. And I took money and took her to the courts and she divorced him. Of course, the Christian women almost fainted. A Muslim <laughs> taking a Christian woman to divorce her husband and I made sure she got away with all of the properties. But afterwards, <laughs> someone asks, how has your religion influenced your friendship? And those two old ladies had a blank look on their faces. What are you talking about? And then this Muslim woman who is deceased now turned and said, Martha, when you look at me, do you see a Muslim? And the Christian woman said, no, I see a sister. A woman with many children, same problems that I have, unfortunately, cheating husbands. And they just went on and on and on. And they said, fate has never, ever played a role. Those two women in their communities, because of the intensity of their friendship, were called witches by community members. They suffered the worst together, but nothing ever took their friendship away. So that became the rallying cause. So when you hear in a movie, does the bullet know a Christian from a Muslim? Can the bullet pick and choose? Because those women said, the two old ladies said, go in the bathroom, take out your clothes. One Muslim woman, one Christian woman, and look at each other. 
and see whether you will see a Muslim on your bodies or you'll see a Christian rating on your bodies. So when you're trying to mobilize, it's so important that you spend time. Today, because of the horrific kind of violence that we see in communities, people expect that movements will just wake up. It needs to be nurtured, like you're building a garden, take trash or all of the weeds and all of the different things, and that's what we did with those women for over almost two years before we launched the mass action. Wow. Very impressive. I am checking with time. I, I have one more question I really want to ask because I've been watching and looking at a number of uh, statements that you've made in recent times, and I've seen you take to the podium to confront leaders of Africa and the Western world the northern communities, um, to speak about their role in the continuing conflicts. I mean, to take them on and say what role they're playing. And I think that, that those moments when I see you doing that, I'm wondering, I'm thinking about your work with the women, the companionship, etc. But what gives you the power and what are you really saying to these people who are, you believe are continuing the conflicts at some level? who are heads of state, et cetera. And does anybody ever listen to you? Does anybody respond when you, when you speak out? Well, when you don't get invited to some country high level meeting, <laughs> you take it that they heard, you know, and it's upsetting to them. But the point, um, D, is that this work that we do should not be afraid of anyone. There shouldn't be an office that we cannot touch. There shouldn't be an individual that we cannot face. And most times when I sit and form my opinion and do my research and do my analysis about certain things, the first thing that comes to mind is that people expect that you'll be quiet because you're a girl. You know, how dare you talk to those male leaders? But when Archbishop Tutu says, I cannot share a stage with Tony Blair, because he's a war criminal. He's applauded, and I respect him for that. You know? And I think that is what should be. We should be able to say, because D, who do we represent? Who is your constituent? Who do I represent? A vast majority of those women that I say I speak for may never make it to San Diego. And if I'm afraid and ashamed to speak about their issues, I fail them, and I fail them miserably. You know, they, they have the misfortune of putting me on a high-level tax force on reproductive health and rights beyond 2015. And I ask someone, do you really think you want me on this tax force? <laughs> because it's not going to be about politics. Like I said this morning, it's not going to be about statistics, it's going to be about individuals. So how do you live in a country where you, women die in the hundreds from maternal-related issues? They're going to give birth and they're dying. And then you have the children of some of the leaders riding the best cars. And it's simple things like an ultrasound machine you can't find in some of the health centers. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't take a lot. 
And so when you, you, you say to yourself, most times I tell myself, if Dr. King was going to be afraid, there would be no civil rights movement in this country. And I don't think, I don't think it's fair for any of us who God has given a space to dominate, to be afraid to speak our minds, especially if it has to do with people who cannot speak for themselves. I'm going to ask one final question in the meantime while people head over to the mic so we can hear your questions. And that's because I'm sure that we have students here and I know that a number of people um, have an interest in media and that you've been interviewed by people in media who are the alternative news media and um, found them somewhat responsive, I think. And I think the role of media, as we've talked about earlier today and in the past, is profound and it's essential that we have responsible media. So when you go on someone's show like Jon Stewart or Stephen Colbert, um, what's the sense? I mean, are they in their own way trying to get the real word out there? Are they? Um, I think I'll speak for both Colbert and Jon Stewart, and I will not speak about some of the other people that have interviewed <laughs> no, no, me. I just only asked those two. <laughs> but those two, especially Jon Stewart, came into the green room, sat with me for almost 30 minutes. And it wasn't like calming my nerves, because look at me, I didn't need him to calm my nerves. <laughs> but it was like genuinely engaging. I've read your book. I have kids. I'm concerned about the state of the world. And he came to me with a lot of respect. There was not this white male supremacy thing. It was like two equals having a conversation. You have something to say. I'm interested in listening to it. And I've been to many places, and it's not just for North America. Even in Africa, you get the vibe when people are not interested, and they just see you as, okay, this is going to be a, I tell my kids, with this price, I'm not an ornament. You know, because it's easy for you. Oh, we got this Nobel laureate to come to this event, and this Nobel laureate to come to that event. No. I will be an ornament when I'm 70. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> At 41, there's work to be done, and you can't afford to, but you, I mean, you, sometimes you get the sense, and with John, I really got the sense that, first thing first, he had read my book. Yeah. It speaks volumes about someone interviewing you who's read, but beyond reading, has gone and done different research, and, and talk about, do, I've done this, I've done that, I've done the other. So, and, and when we had that conversation, the people in that audience, if they had never thought about civil wars or women's rights issue, it brought it to them because he drove it home. And we, you know, at one point during the interview, he said, wow, you're being interviewed by the most po one of the most popular journalists in America. And I said, but you, we're in good company because you're interviewing the most popular African woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as I said, I couldn't resist asking a question because I know that it's hard when we talk about media to feel that we're getting an honest uh, sense of from media about what's going on in the world and, and what they have to do. And I think we, we really need to take it more into those kinds of spaces if we want the world to take women's issues seriously because it, 
those people have followings. They have people who want to hear them. They are like little gods to people. So if some of them stand up and say, women's rights is the end thing, some people will be listening. Others who have never stopped to think about it. So when you talk about breaking new grounds and going into different spaces and new places, I think those are the kinds of people that we need to engage with. Find the good men in the media because for too long, and especially for me, one of the things I constantly say to myself as I go to be interviewed or go to some part of the world, there's so much misconception about the African woman sagging breast, begging bull, many children hanging on them. You know, and sometimes I tell people that even if in Africa a woman has been raped, the one question you need to ask yourself, how is she still caring for 10, 20 children? How is she still caring? Even after that horrifying rape, how is she still standing up with her shoulders up and providing for her family? You need to move beyond the act of the rape and look deep into that strength, the strength that is coming out. So most times, the one thing that I would never and ever hope to do is to come out here. Because again, I'm not representing myself. I'm representing a lot of those women in communities who you cannot mess with. You know, I, we went, when the Nobel women came, we took them to a group of women in Totota. The women, when they were introducing themselves to the Nobel women, and I just sat there smiling. Because these were women I met decades ago who could not even find their voices. And this woman stands and say, I have my lieutenants. Where are my lieutenants? And these women stand up. And these are the people who community people will come to and say, my daughter got raped and the culprit lives in that house. Those women walk to that house, arrest the man and take him to the police station. You dare not resist arrest. (laughs) So if you have these things happening in community, how do you come off portraying those women you represent as weak as and then you we have a whole new generation of young women who have found their their voices also so they are nothing like weak and previously when things used to happen they would be so shy about talking about it but we are seriously coming to the place where African women are now saying if you rape me I have nothing to be ashamed of you should be ashamed of yourself you know so we need to constantly portray that. Even in this country, I, constant, I, will all, I always say, women, you have so much. The platform, the resources. Um, someone said to me, you know, there was this thing going and we, I won a million dollars for my organization. I said, gosh, give me one million dollars. <laughs> And I know what I will do with it. So much resources. And then sometimes when you hear some of the things going on, you ask yourself, these women are strong, they're smart, they're intelligent. But what happened to their legs? Why can't they stand up? Because you see, there's so much that you have to offer us in Africa. You people mirror what happens in this part of the world. And if women's rights is not respected here, 
And our leaders are whining and dining with your leaders. They go back and say, even if it's not, if even the U.S. is not working there, why should we give it to you here? Okay, let me shut up deep. No, no, <laughs> no here's a microphone. There's an empty microphone for, for Luna. I want to ask you about the horrific violence, not only in Liberia, but in so many places in Africa, Eastern Congo you talked about, and other places. <clears throat> At the beginning, you talked about this wonderful spirit in Africa of sharing, of taking care of each other. I think you say Ubuntu, is it right? And <clears throat> I wonder how we restore that. What, what were the dark forces that changed things, that brought this about, and how do we reverse it? You know, I don't think the spirit of togetherness and oneness ever left Africa, or else people like us won't be on the continent still. The spirit is still there. What we've seen happen to our world is something that we cannot explain. When people, I, I, I tell most of the young men who fought in the war that you are a victim of um, trying to live in an urban world, not fitting, and trying to live in your rural community and not fitting there anymore. So mod, modern modernity or whatever we want to call it, but it's, it's a sad, I, I cannot pinpoint what has happened to the spirit in our communities, what I can say to you is that in some parts of the community, those spirits are still there. It's the spirit that will cause women to rally around each other. It's that same spirit that will get some men to come around. And most times when I speak to a community of African men, I say to them, the reason why you all are now demonized is because a lot of you good men have stepped in the back and the evil ones have taken over your space. And the evil men, the men who perpetrate evil, are not many. The ones who are the good ones, they are very many, but somehow they've lost their spines. And they're not doing enough to protect those women. I don't understand what is happening, but when I look at my own dad, who as we grew up, no woman cried from her husband's house that he did not walk to and pull that man out and say, if you want to fight someone, let's fight. But today you see men, you see boys, really most times they just don't want to get involved. And so how do we get them to be like the women again? You know, bring back that spirit of community. But I also think a lot of the violence that they too have seen has affected them in ways that we are not talking about. And because, I mean, the good men now, the handful of the evil ones have affected them in ways that there's something about their pride that has been wounded. If you could not protect your wife from rape, who are you in this time of peace to stand up and say you want to be an advocate for rape? And I think it's up to us women and those of the other men who are doing this work to really now start saying, what happened, happened, and it's time for us to take back our communities. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing your stories. And as I've been hearing them, um, I've just been thinking a lot about the grassroots movements and the organizing efforts 
and wondering, because not everybody is a Leymag Bowie, not everybody is going to end up with a Nobel Prize, so who are your teammates? Who are the people who have walked with you in this journey, and what kind of a group do you like to surround yourself with to make a movement sustainable and possible and powerful? Crazy women. <laughs> Race takers, people who are not concerned about anything, who will do anything, who are not concerned about what do I stand to gain from this. One of the things that um, I say to people when we did this work, and constantly I never claim the glory to say I, I did this by myself. There are a group of women every time that I try to tell people this one is more powerful than I am. All I did was to be the talkative one in the group. But the, some of the women, the, the, the work that we've done has been a work of sacrifice. And those are the people that you want to, if you're building a movement, build your movement around. You don't want to build your movement around those who are thinking, wow, how much money are we going to get out of this? When we started the, the protest, and when we did all of the work that we had done in the past, I tell people I could not keep a dime in my handbag. Because it wasn't just building a movement, it was building a community of women. We were building sisterhood to the point that we all knew each other's problem. Faba, who came here to do the Women's Peacemakers program, lost her husband in 2006. And that afternoon when he got really sick, they called me. I went and saw him taking his last breath. And then as the woman, they took us and we went, so I had to be with her. When he died, because he was a Muslim, his family came and immediately said, you killed him. So you have to explain to us how he died. One phone call, 25 women were in that house. The men said, we changed our mind. You didn't do anything to him. <laughs> he died a natural death. But I saw us sleep in that tiny house. The next morning, trek to the graveside. Stayed with her for two weeks. When the family were doing their official mourning, we did the women's mourning, which is not common in the Muslim faith. We did everything together. And that was what we did from one community to the other. Sometimes if someone gave birth, we were all there. So it wasn't just about peace. It was reaffirming ourselves as women, telling people that we got your back. The personal is political. There is no way any of us can say, I'm a peace activist and I'm doing such a great job. But the people you work with, you don't interact or engage with them in that way. My sisters tell me if I live in Africa, I'm not going to be rich. And I don't think I will be rich because whatever you own has to be shared. So the kind of people that you find me hanging out with will be those women when one person cry, everyone will appear. And when they come together, even when you're crying, they will do something to wipe that tears away from your eyes. When my sister died in 2006, by the time I landed with the body at the airport, the whipnet women were lined up. Some of them were so drunk they didn't know what they were doing there. 
But that evening when my parents were grieving, I remember my dad was so sad. Those women decided to put up a fashion show for him. <laughs> and I just saw him look and say, what kind of trouble is this, Lima? Get these women out of this house. And they said, no. And you know, it just, afterwards, you would not hear crying in that house. That was the spirit, and that is the spirit of any movement that will survive. I'll take two more, you and one more, and then I saw a little pretty girl come up there. But sir, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> standing here as a man. <laughs> and we're happy you're here. Thank you. And I'm happy um, to be here. And I want to thank you, madam, for your courage. You invoked Reverend Martin Luther King, um, who we may agree was a prophet and a courageous one, um, who was also a man. We understand that he had some of the failings that all men and women have. Um, but he stood up. And uh, my question is, we're all sitting here listening to you, feeling very good about what you're saying. It's, it's encouraging to sit here. Would you encourage us to stand up and participate in civil disobedience in this country now, and in what way would you encourage us to do that? And that's my question, thank you. Thank you. I, when the Newtown shooting took place, um, the Africa columnist for Daily Beast, I stayed in my room and sent a thing, a rallying call to the Mothers of America um, to rise up against gun violence in this country. Um, I like the, way, the trend the debate is taking but I think there is a need for, um, and this is my naive African perspective, but I think there's a need for more grassroots organizing around the whole issue of gun violence in this country because after Newtown, what has happened to that conversation is that it has gotten very political. So it's a Joe Biden issue. But when the shooters go on a rampage, it's not a Joe Biden's, even though he feels it. And I'm not saying your leaders are not compassionate, but the people who feel it the most are the community people. And I think when you talk about civil disobedience or, 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 or protests against certain things, I think those are the kinds of things that people need to really start standing up to. But if a community feels passionate about something, and that's how we started the conversation, a thematic concern, an issue of concern, and if the community feels like they are not being heard about that particular issue, I don't think anyone can start, as long as you're not going to be throwing stones and throwing petrol bombs at people, I think it's important for people to be able to express themselves, express the way they feel about particular things. I am all for protests, peaceful protests, non-violent um, protests and non-violent engagement on issues that are dissatisfactory to, um, for a group of people. So I think there are many things in this country that women, men, boys and girls can decide we're going to stand up to. Um, when we were in Chicago a few days ago, one of the things that I told the mayor, because of course Hafiza would make me, Hafiza is my assistant there, read all of these briefing books 
about D, what year she was born, which school she went to, Dean, and everyone else. But in that briefing book, there was all of these statistics and different things about Chicago and the strategies of the police. And when we met with the mayor, that was what he constantly talked about. Oh, my police chief is doing well. And then I said to him, sir, with all due respect, and I'm sure you are doing a great job, this is not just a police issue. It is a community issue. You should enlist the support of uh, enlist the support of religious leaders, school teachers, parents, community people, organizers, different group of people, so that this issue starts from be, it is tackled from the grassroots to the top level. So everyone has a role to play in making communities straight. My theory, the word is upside down. We need many hands to turn it upright and many strategies. One last question. Um. I know what you've been through because my parents ran away from Somalia when I was a young kid. And I came with the IRC Peacemaker, and I was wondering, how did you overcome all this? It, it's something that never goes away. You know, you see all of this. Sometimes you see all of this strength, and you see all of this. Um, everything you see, it's easy to have a flashback. It's easy to walk into a space and just black out. It's easy to cry. It's easy to be upset and angry. And because you have all of these emotions happening every time, what is not easy is for you to keep going. And for me, that's where I find myself. Um, some days I have this tough thing going on about me, trying to be the girl. But inside, I'm like jello. You know, it, it's so much happening. And you you just so emotional about things you see happening. And once you've gone through it, my dear, it, it it's internal. And then it does, it's not about where you come from anymore. So when I hear the stories of women in Mali, it's my story. When I hear the stories of women in Sudan, it's my story. When I hear the story of women, even here in the US, who, single mothers, who have gone through many different things, refugee women, it's my story. So trust me, it never goes away. And one of the things I tell young people, old people, there's no way we can do this work that we're doing if we don't believe there's a higher power responsible for some of the things happening. I'm not saying be a good Christian, be a Muslim, be a, Judaist, a Jewish, or be a Hindu. What I'm saying is you have to have a kind of faith to be able to negotiate this world if you're a peace builder or a peace activist or a change agent. Because you see so many things that will make you angry. I, I always ask this question. What similar traits does Hitler and Martin Luther King have? D? Similar traits? Yes. One characteristics that Hitler and King has, both share, or Desmond Tutu and Charles Taylor. Trait. Really? 
<laughs> one characteristics of trait or whatever, or one one thing they share. And the mayor of Chicago said, "Well, besides humanity, I don't see anything they share." I said, "Well, anger." Hitler was an angry man. Dr. King was angry. Mandela was angry. Charles Taylor was angry. I've been angry. Other women are angry. What distinguishes us from the other is how we put, where we put our anger. So, pardon me, I have this thing that I say anger is fluid, has no shape or size. So, this is the peace container and this is the war container. And anger is not in any, it's here. And you can decide, okay, I'm really angry right now, but I'm going to pull my anger into the peace container. And what you see is someone who's building peace and doing something positive with their anger. Anger is what keeps me going. Anger is something that is like the fuel that I need to do something. But I never ever think that I'm going to pour my anger into a violent container. And so when you, t when, when you say, does it ever go away? No, mama, it never goes away. All you have to do is, where do I pour my anger? Where do I pour all of those emotions to, that will make sense to the world and that will lead a, leave a legacy? And most times when you've gone through war or you've gone through a situation, the question you need to ask yourself is, do I want to put this in this violent container and end up in the Hague or end up a villain, or do I want to put it in this peace container and end up leaving a perfect legacy, like someone like King, or Mandela, or Tutu, or Mother Teresa? Because all of these people, like all of the people we consider villains, had one common thing, and that thing was anger. Tonight, as you go home, think about it, teach your children it. Anger is neither good nor bad but how you pour your anger is what your life story end will be. Thank you all very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.